It was <clears throat> the um, early 1990s, the first time I ever had to deal with it. It ended unpleasantly. Heartbreak, really, as it has most every time I've had to deal with it subsequent to that first time. I'm talking about <clears throat> the issue of people living together today rather than getting married. You can call it cohabitation, shacking up, whatever term you want to use. Two single individuals living together uh, outside of the bounds of marriage. In fact, most often, um, I used to do it without exception, but... Uh, uh, I've relaxed in these older days. <clears throat> but I would have a couple uh, go through a four to six week premarital counseling with me uh, before their wedding. And <clears throat> I if I didn't know the couple, I would just tell them up front, look, if you're living together, I'm going to ask you to separate and live in different locations while we go through this premarital counseling up into your wedding. And out of who knows how many, I, I, I started to try to guess and I thought I just gave up. Out of who knows how many requests through the years that came to me like that, someone outside the church <clears throat> or a couple I, I didn't really know, it came to me wanting to uh, me to do their ceremony and uh, me giving them those parameters. Out of all of those who came to me, only one couple did it. Only one couple agreed to separate while we did the premarital counseling uh, up to their <coughs> wedding day. And uh, I actually got to see them uh, a few months ago when, when we went back to uh, First Baptist Church in Whitesboro to do, do a, a funeral. But nonetheless, <coughs> it's obvious that this issue of living together outside of marriage is not a new phenomenon. But it indeed has become more commonplace. And that is why our culture is asking, what is wrong with people living together? What is wrong with choosing to cohabitate rather than get married? Well, let me show you this graph. It contrasts the views of cohabitation versus marriage between the years of 2002 and 2013 through 17 when they were compiling the information. 
uh, you can see that within this 15-year period, the number of adults ages 18 to 24 who are cohabitating together, living together, has increased 5%, while the number of the same age adults fell 10% in marriage. Now, I looked at these and I thought, you know, those percentiles surprised me. They seemed to be low to me. But again, remember, uh, number one, that was four years ago. And we're doing about the 2000, 2000 to uh, almost 220, 217. And I was surprised by the, by the low numbers percentage. But then I started calculating. And between the years of 02 to 13 through 17, 5.75 million young people, 18 to 24, chose to live together instead of becoming married. Double that, 11.5 million of the same age adults decided that marriage was simply not for them, not the way they wanted to live their lives. Further research has shown that the primary reason why young women and young men today are turning away from marriage, either in cohabitation or just refusing to make that kind of commitment, is because the fear of divorce. Those respondents seemed un unsure and fearful that they would not have the ability to stick it out in a marriage. And it was not only the group whose parents had previously divorced. Even am uh, among those whose parents stayed together, many are turning away from marriage because of the fear of divorce. You know the stats. We've been quoted the stat uh, for as long as I can remember. The stat that says that half of marriages end in divorce. How many of you have heard that? 50% of marriages end in divorce. There may be a silver lining in that, though. The fact that that statistic is a myth. The fact that one out of every two marriages may indeed be a myth. I first read this article a few years ago. Uh, I was surprised by its content, but I didn't say anything. I never spoke about it because I'd never read it in any other place or never heard anyone else refer to it until this year. Christianity Today, in 2021, printed an article by researcher Shante Feldhahn. 
Mrs. Feldhahn was troubled by the statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce, and it's the same or worse for Christians. We've all heard that. What concerned her the most was that she never saw any statistics backing up this statement. She later found in her research that that number of 50% of marriages end in divorce came from projections made by researchers in the 1970s and 80s. She did her own research. And here's what she said. She said, I started coming across all this data that seemed to completely contradict the conventional wisdom that 50% of marriages end in divorce. She said in the 2009 Census Bureau's, now again, this is, this is not new, but it, it's new in terms of publicity. So it really hasn't gotten out yet. But she said that the 2009 Census Bureau numbers confirmed that 72% of people are still married to their first spouse. And the 28 who are not still married to their first spouse includes widows and widowers who had been married to their first spouse for years and decades. Her findings, and I quote, The data is complex, but it's closer to 20 to 25% of marriages end in divorce and even less of church-going spouses. The actual average? About 75 to 80% of marriages are happy or happy enough to stay together. Now, I raise this as simply a possibility. But a very real possibility that this information we have been fed, unscientific data, guesses by researchers for 40 years has been wrong. And in some manner, in some way, it has infused into this culture and young people of today a fear of commitment. A fear that they can't endure. A fear that their marriage will end in divorce. A fear that they will be one of the two that don't make it. because of all this this morning I want us to turn back to the foundation I want us to see what the creator has to say about this issue 
of living together versus marriage. And I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm going to read a large section of Scripture all the way through without, <clears throat> without comment. And then we're going to skip a couple of verses and continue on. So follow with me. I'm going to read, first of all, verses 1 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 7. And again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul writes, Now regarding the questions you've asked in your letter, yes, it's good to live a celibate life, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should, should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish everyone were single just as I am, but God gives to some the gift of marriage and to others the gift of singleness. So I say this, or I say to those who are not married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now I speak that I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue to living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue to live with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't your husbands, you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you in, and remain as you are when God first called you. This is my first rule for all churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it, and the man who was uncircumcised before he became a believer should not be circumcised now, for it makes no difference whether, a man, whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yet each of you should remain as you were when God called you. And then I want to focus on verse 28, but before we get there, um, 
Let's read to get context. Begin in verse 25. Now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that, that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to be, get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who are married at this time will have troubles. And I'm trying to spare you these problems. Verse 28c, again in the New Living However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. And I'm trying to spare you those problems. In the New King James, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. In the ESV, verse 28c, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. As we are speaking as the church to an unbelieving culture, we would be honest with them. And we would say, yes, marriage is an institution of God. But it is not a perfect institution. And the scripture says, you will have trouble. You <laughs> will have worldly troubles in marriage in this world. Yes, there will be conflicts. Yes, there will be times of testing. Yes, there will be prayers at night saying, Oh God, I think I married the wrong person. Yes, those times can come. But I like what this older pastor said to uh, a young couple at their wedding. He said this, and listen closely. He said, your love is priceless, and it needs to be guarded. Selfishness, pride, lack of forgiveness, inattentiveness. These are all but some of the many thieves capable of stealing away your love. In a sense, your marriage is like a treasure chest around your love, forming, he says, a protective casing where your love is deposited. It prevents your love from being stolen. Treasure chests have hard sides. And the hardness protects that which is on the inside. Many people live with the false assumption that love enables a marriage to survive. Now listen carefully. Many people live with the assumption 
that love is what enables marriage to survive. Therefore, what if I fall out of love? I, I, I don't know how many people have come to me over the years, couples, telling me I've just fallen out of love with her. I've just fallen out of love with him. And I say, well, I don't say it, but what I want to say is, so? Many people live with the false assumption that love is what enables a marriage to survive, but that's not the case. That's not the case. Your love will not ensure that your marriage will survive. But it is your marriage that will ensure that your love will survive. It is your marriage as a treasure chest with protective sides. It is your marriage that will ensure that your love survives. This is the very reason, he says, God ordained marriage. Marriage keeps love alive. Not love driving marriage. Marriage causes love to endure. Let me ask you this. Those of you who, are, who have been married 40 years, do you believe this is true? Marriage enables love to survive. Raise your hands if you've been married 40 years and you believe that. If you've been married 30 years, raise your hands. Hey? Hey? 20 years. 10 years. 5 years. It's a truth. The God-ordained institution of marriage, which involves commitment, and commitment defined as self-sacrifice, it is the institution, divine and God-ordained, that causes the marriage to survive. Part of the problem today, I'm convinced, is misinformation. And 40 years of faulty guessing. Heather Haverlinsky is the author of the book, Is Marriage Obsolete? And she wrote in 2019 this article in a magazine called The Cut, a New York magazine. And she writes this, and it's very honest. She says, is it, isn't it reasonable? In other words, it is reasonable to question the validity and the value of a legal, legal contract, speaking, speaking of a marriage certificate, of a legal contract written in ink on paper 
that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution. She says marriage is, is hard and it just a signature on a piece of paper and the consequences of it breaking apart could totally ruin your life. She said, isn't it right to think through this? Particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. And there's a host of inconveniences to being married, along with the untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, regret. Considering all of that, she says, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade called marriage? And then she answers her own question this way. She says, so then why do I love this torturous state of affairs of marriage so much? The daily companionship, the shared household cost, the tax breaks are not enough. It is because some of the peak moments of a marriage are when you share who you really are. When you share your anxieties, your fears, your longings, and even your horrors. That's why sickness and death are key to marriage vows. Because there is nothing more divine than being able to say, Today I am really truly at my very worst knowing that it won't make my spouse run out the door. My husband has seen me at my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse from this point on. But somehow to me, that feels like grace. The commitment, the bond, the giving, the self-sacrifice is what marriage is and what makes it an institution that will always exist. Let me close with a quote from Tim Keller. He says, in a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness. In a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness and you see your own selfishness as the fundamental problem. You treat it more seriously than you do your spouse's selfishness. He goes on to say, the everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. Every day there's a chance to inspire, encourage your partner to become his or her best. In this lens, marriage isn't about two individuals trying to satisfy their own needs. It's about a partnership of mutual self-giving for the purpose of moral growth and to make our little corner of the world a little better. 
the truth is, many today are choosing a broken model, a broken system, a false attempt at the enemy to replicate the divine institution of marriage. People are being hurt out of this false narrative that you only have a 50% chance to make it in marriage. We need to reinform our young people. We need to help them deal with this anxiety issue and to invite them to trust God who will walk with them.